If you're looking to sell your private company stock, SharesPost has a solution for you. With more than $4 billion in company-approved transactions, SharesPost is the leading marketplace for private company shares. To learn more, visit us at sharespost.com equity. Hello and welcome back to Equity. I'm Alex Wilhelm, one of your regular co-hosts. Kate is actually off this week, but don't worry, we're doing something a little bit different and I'm hoping quite fun. So normally what we do on this show is we go through some late stage stuff, some early stage stuff, maybe an IPO, talk about that, maybe have a guest on, riff, go home, pretty easy. This time we're doing something a bit more topical. We're going to be looking at the US and global IPO markets. Now, the reason why you probably care about that if you care about startups is a lot of unicorns need to go public. So we want to explain or at least work to understand the exit market that they're going to be working in in Q4. Now, one last little thing. We're a few weeks early, so we're recording this a little bit ago, but we think it's going to be really worth our time and your time. So let's get into it. And I have on the phone, James Clark of the London Stock Exchange, uh, who's someone that I've known for a long time, a very active Twitter user and a, uh, one of the more interesting voices in the kind of global capital markets. James, hi, how are you doing? G'day. It's, 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 sorry, I've just done the typical cliched Australian thing, but g'day. Uh, it's lovely to speak to you this morning in your time, late afternoon, London time. Pleasure to be on the show. Yeah, it's, uh, it's shockingly early once again in San Francisco. There's this new trend on equity of making me get up early and talk to people. And I, I think it's a mistake. I think we should do everything at night. Um, but, I think it's great. You've got this wonderful morning growl. I, I'm a bit jealous of that, actually. Um, yeah, I, I had to quit smoking cigarettes. So it's slowly going away because <laughs> uh, the modern world has reformed me, sadly. Um, but James, you are the head of tech and life sciences at the primary markets at the London Stock Exchange which is a very long title. And actually this morning, as I was prepping for the show, I, I didn't actually know what it meant. Okay, so, so let's, let's break this down a little bit. So I'm the head of tech and life sciences and I work in the primary markets here. Primary markets is the part of the London Stock Exchange, which most people think of when they think of the London Stock Exchange. That's you know, the bit that helps companies to raise primary capital on our markets. And our job is to, to work with tech companies and, and life science companies to help them understand how public markets operate, help them understand where public markets fit into their yes. into their sort of long-term strategy and, and to sort of really hopefully shepherd them through that process and hopefully see some listings here in London. Good. And, and the goal today is to have kind of me bring the American perspective to you bring the London slash global perspective, talk yep. about a couple things and see if we can get everyone on the right foot for the Q4 kind of IPO markets because uh, Q3 has been big here in the States. Q2 has been big in the States. Q4 looks a little light. Um, well, I, I'm not seeing yeah. a lot on my, on, on, I mean, there's a lot of life sciences in the US coming up, but we focus a yeah, bit more right. on the uh, tech kind of venture backed side. Yeah, here. Like we'll, be, we'll be focusing more on the tech stuff. And, and look, to be honest with you, Q3 in, in Europe has been fairly quiet, but this is Europe. And Q3 is when Europeans get to do the stuff that Americans wish they could do and actually have decent holidays and enjoy lifestyle and get to the beach. So European markets have been a little bit quiet in the third quarter, but it's been pretty busy globally. Uh, seen a lot of stuff out of Asia. So yeah, there, there's a fair bit of interesting stuff to talk about. I mean, I wanted to make fun of you for, for dissing my country like that, but uh, that's not wrong. So I can't, I can't really defend it. Um, let's, let's talk about one thing that's really caught my eye lately because we've been covering, you know, IPOs like Peloton over here and mm -hmm. uh, Smile Direct Club, these kind of enormous offerings that had tons of momentum behind them, big valuation gains, and, and they got kind of beat up. And I, I have a new thesis about how the, the, at least the domestic here capital markets view uh, kind of like high growth tech companies. And that is that unprofitability has lost a lot of its shine. There has been this sentiment in the Valley, for lack of a better term, 
for years now that companies can certainly postpone even a, a reasonable path to profitability as long as growth was tremendous. And now that seems here in late 2019 to be going away, uh, which is fine by me. It makes a lot of sense. I've never understood what people were saying the last couple of years. But I, I'm curious, has there been a similar kind of sentiment shift or is that kind of match what you're what you guys what you guys see over in London? Look, I think any public market has a baseline desire and need for growth companies, but who growth companies who, if not profitable, are on a pathway to profitability. You know, as we get into a later part of a cycle, you're always going to have the, the greed overtake fear, so to speak. And, yeah. and there's going to be greater desire for companies who are growth indicators without necessarily having the pathway to profitability that the most investors would like. Eventually, that stuff does start to change. And maybe we've seen that turn happen in the US specifically. Whereas I think European markets are a little bit different. We sort of run Mm -hmm. at a slightly different cycle. We don't have the peaks, but then we don't have the troughs. It's it's a bit more of a stable market all the way through. Yeah. Can I ask a really, really embarrassingly American question about this? Sure. Um, When we have something that really kind of shakes up our markets, like when when WeWork tried to go public and then got smacked Mm -hmm. down and had to just essentially give up. Does that impact sentiment at all across the pond, or is that something that's relative domestic and stays contained uh, to the U.S. market? I mean, more, more bluntly, are you guys paying attention to what we're doing, or are we kind of operating in two different spheres when it comes to IPO sentiment and, and what doesn't work? Let's break out the two potential audiences here. I think, look, as a, as a tech market participant, we watch this sort of stuff quite avidly. And sure. When it comes to the public market, so I think investors in Europe have generally tended to be pretty sanguine about a lot of things. My guess is they're probably looking at the sort of stuff that's happening in the US markets with a bit of schadenfreude, perhaps a little yeah. bit of like yep. an understanding that, you know, look, guys, folks over there, we don't really get quite so excited about stuff. We're going to keep a sort of a fairly even keel. And, you know, what we, what we maybe are seeing is US markets returning to a bit more normalcy. And really, that's a good thing. Yeah. I mean, because when I think about the, the largest um, IPO that I've tracked recently in the Europe space, it was, I think, Adyen, the Dutch company. Yeah, Dutch company, um, listed in Amsterdam, um, very strong listing. Interestingly enough, not a very typical European listing in that, firstly, there's very small free float, which European listings tend to have larger free floats. And so therefore, you don't tend to see as great a movements of of price afterwards. And and Adyen was a very very small free float with a very large movement. And and it was very atypical for, for that kind of European listing. But yeah, as you say, great company, perform well in the market and, and sort of, you know, whether you're an investor or a customer, uh, people have, have sort of been you know, very happy with Adyen as, as, as an overall service, but it, it's sort of, it's not a great representation of European listing just because it's so atypical in that sort mm, of way. I see. Because when I saw that, that, that debut, I thought to myself, holy hell, you know, I, I don't think about Amsterdam's markets too often, frankly, probably not as often as I should. So I was surprised to see a company of that, that uh, valuation list there choose to select that market over uh, London or over, you know, New York. One of the things that's quite refreshing about European markets is you do have a, a degree of national pride. Ah. You'll have companies list in London because the founders and the management team are, are British and they want to support the local market. And definitely with the Nordics, that happens a lot. And, and Adkin was another another example where, you know, there was a great push by the company to list on a local exchange. And and in some ways, that's that's good because it helped those anchor companies bring in other companies onto the market. And look, we were definitely encouraged the same thing. Yeah, well, speaking about Adyen and, and companies of its ilk, one thing that I've noticed here, kind of trend number two that I wanted to bring up is that software companies in America have been really bulletproof. It seems uh, going public, investors have been, you, you know, uniformly and nearly universally positive about them. And, you know, when we, you and I were talking before the show about a couple of companies um, that had done well over on your markets, like uh, Network International, uh, you said there was kind of a surge of fintech companies, kind of software-ish entities. So mm-hmm. are you seeing similar kind of bullish global sentiment about software firms uh, as we're seeing over here uh, in the States? 
Yeah, look, I think what one of the things that, you know, the reason why software companies are supported in the US is similar to the reason why they're supported in Europe and elsewhere is generally speaking, the metrics that back them up are really solid. If you're a if you're a business to business play, you've obviously been earning revenues probably right from the start. Your your revenue growth is very consistent and or at least it's very um, has a long track record. Mm-hmm. And investors can can look at what you've done and, and and plan fairly well forward into understanding what you're doing. And I think that if you look at sort of especially European markets and, and London is very typical of those European markets, is you'll see you know, investors are going to look at how is the company growing. It doesn't need to be profitable. It can be EBITDA negative if necessary, but they do want to see a pathway to profitability. And typically speaking, a lot of software companies, SaaS companies, business to business companies are able to demonstrate that kind of data in a way that is very compelling to, to investors. I mean, it's kind of the opposite of what WeWork put out, which was impossible to understand. Software companies, especially SaaS companies, are relatively uh, modelable. You can kind of map this stuff out and see where they'll be in three, four years, put a valuation on it. I know, shockingly, as a concept here in, in Silicon Valley, uh, but it makes a lot of sense. Well, look, there's a reason why WeWork attempted to make their business look in that sort of way. is because they know that investors look at this in a very positive light. It's just a matter of it was a bit too much of a leap for the investment committee to make in this circumstance. All right. I know it's a little bit off topic, but just from, from memory here, this is not going to be entirely right. But uh, we work at gross margins of something around 20%, depending on how you read their, uh, their S1. And uh, they had expenses of 189% of revenue off gross margins of 20%. I mean, those numbers don't make sense because they don't make sense. Like, I'm still just blown away that they actually put that on paper put it out and thought people were going to buy it. Like it's- as, as, as I said on, on, on Twitter yesterday, it used to be if you're creating a hedge fund and you wanted to short companies, you'd get a bunch of quantum to do the job. Whereas today, you just get some English lit grad lits, get them to look through this in the S1 and see exactly how much of it makes sense. The fact that this has happened is a, a positive thing because it means that investors are, have got their thinking hats on. It means that the money that they represent, the pension fund money, the you know the, the savers, the people who actually who, who, who have a, a real stake in seeing the public markets to succeed are getting the best representation from the people who manage their money. And, and ultimately, that, that is a very positive thing for, for societies and communities around the world. And capitalism needs to work in that kind of way. And it's, it's good to see that the investment community are doing that on the investor's behalf. Yeah, I mean, this is a bit of the, the, the public-private divide that I think we don't talk about enough in terms of, of how people behave. Like, you know, I, so people can't see us. We're not recording the video of this, but I, I'm looking at you right now as we record. And me, the private markets guy, is wearing a really old startup T-shirt from like seven years ago. And you, the public markets guy, are in a well-lit office. You have, you know, coiffed hair and you're wearing a shirt with buttons. And, and that's the difference. You know, I, I make it as a joke, but also it's a bit true. I mean, the private side is a bit more wild, a bit less. Um, I'm not wearing a tie. I will say I'm not wearing a tie. On, on the software front, though, I want to get into pricing in a minute, but I want to get there via uh, Cloudflare. Because here in the States, when Cloudflare uh, raised its range and then priced above its range, we read those as, as, as bullish signals. And I talked to the CEO of Claude Flair about his pricing, and he was pretty, I mean, I think we have a clip here somewhere. We actually managed to dig up that clip. So here is me talking to the CEO of Cloudflare on their IPO day. I want to talk about pricing a little bit. You guys came out with, uh, I think it was a $10 to $12 per share uh, price range, which to me looked kind of light. Uh, you raised that and then you priced above it. It seems like reaction was very positive. I'm, I'm curious, were you guys hoping to raise your range and so forth, or were you pleasantly surprised by the public market's kind of reaction to your numbers and kind of the story you were telling as you were prepping to kind of get the IPO finished off? 
Yeah, you know, I think that what you really want to do through the roadshow process is price discovery. And, and you can price too high and screw things up, and you can price too low and screw things up. Um, and, and so, you know, I think the ideal process is one where you figure out what the, what the real price and demand for your... And now back to James. Uh, he was relatively positive about it, enthusiastic, and kind of like kind of amped. You know, he thought the pricing went good, showed a lot of positive momentum. You know, and you know when you and I talk about this, you you know we t- you mentioned some stats about how companies often in Europe uh, are are much more likely to price inside their range, and that's an that's a, that was a good thing in your mind because it shows the ability to properly uh, estimate where a company should price because you can get its valuation more accurate. Um, why do we have this this this, this kind of cultural difference it's, between our two shores and how we do it? It's cultural. Part of, part of it's based on rules. London Stock Exchange applies rules from the UK listing authority, which rules are taken from the European listing authority. So we have a fairly consistent rule structure across Europe. Mm-hmm. And part of that structure allows companies to have much more clarity and exposure of their pricing in the lead up to an IPO and also to have a lot more privacy around the pricing leading up to an IPO. So it's not this sort of high stakes gamble <laughs> to, to know what your price is going to be by the time you IPO and mentioning stats. So since 2014, so the last four years on London, 97% of all companies listing have listed within range. Now, if you compare that to the US, 38% have listed above range, uh, 47% have listed in range and 14% below range. There's a lot more riding on how you price the company and how the optics of that pricing works and how much you need the price to rise on opening day. And that's all driven by, you know, the size of the free floats and all these. So there's all these mechanisms working together. I love watching US markets, but there is a drama and a circus about it. But what we tend to see in Europe is you're a company, you're coming to market, you're looking to raise capital, you want to try and maximize the funding, the funding raise you can do for that, for that listing. Uh, How much money you bring in actually in the offering itself. Precisely. And, And so therefore, the incentive to get the pricing right is extremely high. And so both all the participants in the market are looking to try and make that work. The, the consequence of that is if a company comes to market and on opening day they're up by 5 or 10%, it's champagne or rat. Everyone's done a great job. A very small pop by American standards, that 5 10%. It sounds incredibly dry, but it works. But look, if the, the other thing that happens, if a company gets up 25% on opening day, awkward questions. If a company's more than 50% on opening day, it's a steward's inquiry. So it's it sort of, we have these different dynamics about how the markets work and, and that sort of the, the culture and, and the, the regulations around that all right into that. So therefore, one of the, you know, one of the roles I have to play quite a lot is working with investors and, and companies looking to come to market, just helping them understand those sorts of differences because they'll look at what's happening in the US and the lights and the razzle dazzle and, and whatever else. And it's sort of it's a very different kind of world. And understanding why companies need to do what they do is key to the choice of markets. Yeah, this is a brilliant segue to the last thing that I wanted to talk about because you're talking about how if a company has too large of a first day pop, which means that its shares after they list shoot up from that price they'd raised money at, it's a mistake if it goes too high. You know, in the US, we have a history of during bullish times, having companies debut and then explode in value. Um, traditionally, by the media at least, has been considered kind of a, a, a bullish positive sign. Look at all this demand in the market for your shares. Oh my gosh. Um, there's a movement here among certain tech leaders like Bill Gurley, et cetera, to argue that these sorts of quick uh, accretions of value post-IPO pricing uh, are essentially free giveaways to Wall Street, which is you know, the colloquial term here for the banking class, essentially. And 
there's a big movement towards direct listings. And this is, this is something that we've seen uh, with Spotify and Slack most famously over here. And I guess globally, really, because you know, Spotify is a global company. Um, y- you know, is there, is there less demand for direct listings because you have more tame pricing globally? And therefore, is this kind of a U.S. need given that we tend to have, as you noted, a bit more uh, uh, wild pricing for IPOs? Look, direct listings are actually not all that unusual in London. I mean, my, I, I started at the Stock Exchange in 2000, January 2016, and mm-hmm. we had a direct listing in February 2016. We, we don't call them direct listings here. We call them introductions. We have the capacity to do those sorts of things. And, and if companies, that's how they choose to come to market, it's, it's, it's a different way of doing it. You know, obviously, the, the advisory and banking community is happy to support companies as they wish to do that, and they will do that. I think Bill Gurley is getting at is you're, you're in a circumstance as a company coming to market where things don't seem to necessarily be set up in a, in a way that's helpful to you. And, and you, you have the profile. Ultimately, we're, we're an exchange where we're happy that companies are able to come to market in any way that they choose. Yeah. But I think you know, maybe Gurley, Bill Gurley does have a point that you know, if you're trying to list in, on, an, on a market like those in the US, the, the, the setup can be a little bit challenging for you. If you want to extract maximum value. I mean, like his point is that they're, they're leaving money on the table and enriching the wrong people. I mean, it's Perfectly fine, but if you want to get every dollar into your accounts, then Bill has more of a point. The other thing I'd say to him is, Bill, come and list your companies on London because you can sidestep all those sorts of problems in in, in one go. That would, but that would involve Americans having a global perspective, which we historically don't do well unless we're flying like a fighter jet. So I don't know if you really want us to come over. <laughs> It's well, you know, it's, 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 look, don't come for the weather, but come for the market structure is what I would say. Can I, can I tell you a secret about London? This is yeah. true. I think every single time in my life I've been to London, it's rained on me. And I, I am all dreaming right. of going to London and actually looking around and going, holy crap, it's like the movies. It's all blue and lovely. Hey, everyone. Don't forget, this episode is brought to you by Shares Post. Um, look, we only have a minute or two. I want to talk about uh, what's ahead because this, is, this has been one of the most fascinating years of IPOs here in, in America. And I would even say globally, looking at China and so forth. So thinking about uh, kind of Q4 global debuts, I would say kind of medium strength, nothing crazy, nothing super modest, but I, I wanted to make sure I checked in with you uh, before I told everyone that. It's, it's, been a, it's been a fairly busy year. I mean, we've had sort of 190 global tech IPOs raising $41 billion. If I look at sort of some of the, some of the really interesting stuff that's happened, we've had a couple of really cool listings here in London. Probably one of the more interesting ones was, was not a tech company, but it's a company called Huatai Securities. It's a broker based out of China. How do you spell that, James? That's H-U-A-T-A-I. Got it. Thanks. Yeah. So, so Huatai is, is a broker. And look, the, the reason this is interesting is, and this is going to get really nerdy, I apologize about that, but it's, it's, the plumbing that, it's the plumbing that enables the global capital markets to operate. And Huatai is a Chinese company that listed in London using a recently established uh, stock connect between London and Shanghai, which means that they're able to raise capital in London to trade fully fungibly across both of the markets. And this is the first time any two exchanges have been connected in that kind of way. So what you've done is you've built a connective tissue between Shanghai and London. So companies can effectively list in either place and trade in either place as if they're essentially the same thing. And this is, this is new creation you guys put together this year, if I recall. Watsai was the very first company to do this and it was in July. So they raised a couple of billion, the valuation is about 25 billion. But what you're effectively doing is you think about the pools of capital that are, that are on display. You've got 
roughly 60 billion worth of potential sort of market size in London, roughly the same thing from the, from the primary side of things in China. And those two pools of capital have now potentially become combined. So it's now 120. Right. It's a huge pool of capital. It's kind of like, you know, when you twin a city, you know, like Boston and, you know, I don't know. There is, there is actually a Boston in, 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 in the UK as well. I'm, I'm imagining that's where Boston got the inspiration for their name. So, yeah, that, that does happen uh, We did steal. We did steal all the names. Um, so, so you seem moderately bullish about the Q4 IPO market. Um, yeah, look, I, I think it's sort of it's an interesting time globally. Obviously, we, we sort of had. A busier H1 than, than anyone really expected to, which is great. I think the second half of the year is going to be interesting. I think the WeWorks of the world have created a bit of an interesting dynamic for investors. But as we've seen, even the last couple of weeks, we've had German listings, we've had Chinese listings, we've had Japanese listings. There's interesting companies still coming to market and they're do, doing very well. And the thing that I look at is, yes, it's very easy to get distracted by the travails of some very high profile companies and, and sort of what, what, what the consequence of them on the market is. But really... There's still great companies coming to market. Those yes. companies are still doing well. Investors are, are, are supporting those companies and investors are being rewarded for doing so. Uh, and I think that you know, a, a more sensible and um, effective market, uh, sort of market trading globally is ultimately better for the companies that are participating. Well, I, I know we can't talk about politics because it's not the show for that. But you know, it'll be interesting to see if the, uh, the markets don't run afoul of the politics and if this can all keep going for... As long as I know a lot of companies that want to get out, hope that it does. Um, but James, thank you for coming on uh, this afternoon over where you are and, and bright and early here in rainy San Francisco where I am. Uh, a treat as always. Before we let you go, though, uh, tell people where, uh, what is your Twitter handle so they can go and find you? Okay. Yeah, that's right. My Twitter handle is uh, at Mr. Mr. Underscore James underscore C. Um, and you can find me on Twitter. Um, hopefully, try not to get in too many arguments with you. I promise I won't pick them most of the time. That's that uh, the yeah, biggest lie the, of the morning. <laughs> but yeah, like you'll find, you'll find me chatting about many different sorts of things, but uh, mostly about uh, tech and public market. All right. Well, James, lovely to have you on. Thank you for coming on. And everyone, uh, we are a few weeks into Q4, so let's hope it goes well. And we'll talk to you in about uh, seven days. All right. You can find us on Twitter at Alex and at Kate Clark Tweets, or you can email us at equitypod at techcrunch.com. And we are now on YouTube. Watch the full episode on the TechCrunch YouTube page. And if you really want to support the show, please rate us and review us on iTunes. And you can also subscribe to our podcast on Spotify and all the other places where you get podcasts. And a big thank you to our producer, Christopher Gates, our executive producer, Henry Pickovet, and we will see you all right here next week.